welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Little lamb, have you lost your way? <laughs> How are you? Come on. Come on and get him. Seems very, very comfortable. <laughs> I'm very thankful that you don't put him on a leash. I don't like that when parents do that. <laughs> there was a panel discussion about why do people have such a fascination with celebrities and why did I identify with them? So why do people identify with celebrities? And why do they buy, buy all of those magazines that publish the pictures that are taken by the paparazzi? And one editor from the Newsweek magazine said, well, it's because people no longer have a fascination with God. And then another panelist said, well, it's a revival of the worship of the pagan gods of antiquity the gods and the goddesses who were continually cavorting around and doing the most outlandish things. Well, it is a rather phenomenal uh, fascination, isn't it? People are fascinated by what is the president doing now on his latest tour? What kind of trouble are the starlets in? The tabloids at the checkout stands are filled with the latest gossip about who is marrying whom and who is divorcing whom. So the intrigue is captivating. So we're brought around to this question. Since the whole world seems to be caught up with celebrity and personages, is, is it possible that God can captivate the whole world's attention with his gospel and the cross, with all of this going on? And or is God less competent to get the world's attention than the British royal family can command, or the presidential family. You know, the Bible tells us that in the last days, God will command the world's attention with a message that tells what, since he's the son of God, who suffered unspeakable agony on this planet when he was crucified, it only seems fair that he is entitled to a long vacation after such a terrible ordeal. He did his duty heroically, and now he can rest and he can enjoy the plaudits of the heavenly places and hosts and the praise of at least some of Earth's inhabitants. But a very thoughtful individual at this meeting asked, what is Jesus doing now? And the response was, ministering as our high priest in the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary. But just what is he doing? Well, the pastor pondered and then responded, he's preparing a people for his second coming. Yes, but what is he doing to accomplish that? 
Well, he is convicting of sin. That's the first work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, but what is different about that and what he was doing in the first apartment of the heavenly sanctuary? And the response was, he is preparing a people, he was in the first apartment preparing a people to die in the Lord so that they could come up in the first resurrection. But the inquirer said, what is he doing in the second phase of his ministry? And the pastor responded, he is preparing a people to stand in the time of trouble to receive the seal of God instead of the mark of the beast and be translated at his coming. That is the present truth of the gospel of the heavenly sanctuary. But is he doing something different for people now than he has done for people in the past? Is, is this really fair to those people of the past who have gone into their graves awaiting their first resurrection? The response was, well, he has to be fair to everybody throughout all of human history, yes, but never before has he had a people who were prepared to appreciate what he wants to do and in order and so fully cooperate with what he wants to do. But weren't there always some who did that, like Enoch and Elijah and Moses? Yes, very true. There were some few in every generation, but never a corporate body of believers worldwide of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. But what is different about what the high priest does for them now, and how does he do this? Well, would you like to have some bona fide evidence that the Lord loves you personally that he loves you especially, would you like to have some evidence that the Lord is preparing you for translation? Well, that would be better news than winning the lottery, I would think. Preparing you to stand alive when Jesus comes, as he comes as a consuming fire. Well, maybe you can't, you can find it. Does, let me ask you this, does the Lord discipline you? Does he chasten you? Does he reprove you? Does he convict you? Does he remind you of your sins and your weaknesses and your failures and point you to Jesus, your righteousness, for forgiveness? You know, there's a special Hebrew word that encompasses all of those thoughts that are found in Psalm 73, 14, which might bring some great encouragement to you if you can say yes to those questions. The psalmist is praying, and he says, All day long I am chastened every morning, he says. So listen to his prayer. I'm going to read it to you from the Good News Bible. Oh God, every morning you have punished me. I try to think this problem through, but it was too difficult for me until I went into your temple. When my thoughts were bitter and my feelings were hurt, I was as stupid as an animal. I did not understand you. Yet you hold me by the hand, you guide me with your instruction, and at the end you will receive me with honor. 
What else do I have in heaven but you? Since I have you, what else do I want on earth? That's Psalm 73, 14 through 25. And Hebrews 12, verse 28, picks up on that insight. It says, Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and he scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? If ye be without chastenment, then are ye bastards and not sons. In other words, the Lord here is talking about discipline. And he's not punishing you in the sense of making you suffer for your sins or pay up on a debt. Uh, If that were the case, then this would be the Hindu idea of karma. No, but he is training you to stand in the time of trouble to be a member of his parliament of his cabinet, to sit with him on his throne. And all of that is the practical result of his work in the most holy apartment, the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary, preparing a people for translation. He, his discipline is an evidence of his special love. Now, my father believed in what comes around goes around. And he told me that if the teacher at school disciplined me, then I could expect the same thing when I came home. Some of you remember those days. That's ancient history. In other words, if Mr. Lee gave me a spanking, a whipping at school, I could expect one when I got home. Now, teachers don't do that anymore because (laughs) they're have a lot of restraints upon them. But you know something? I'm thankful for my father's discipline because it told me that I had a father, that he cared about me enough to discipline me, and that I was a son. And he wanted to help me. He, wanted, he loved me through his discipline. Now, there's some people who don't like the idea of discipline today. They don't like the idea of self-denial. They don't like the principle of the cross, and so they chafe at the discipline of the Lord. But this is the Lord's means of preparing us for the times ahead, the hard times ahead, and for translation. You know, the book of Hebrews does not reveal Jesus on some kind of a vacation, some kind of a furlough, from missionary work that he did here on this earth. I mean, he is, the Bible portrays him as working 24-7, 365 days a year, continually as our great high priest. And I'll tell you, it's a full-time job for the infinite Son of God to be our high priest. And the Holy Spirit is the grand, authentic vicar of Christ who is ministering constantly to millions and billions of human beings who long for salvation. And if the Queen of England and if the President of the United States deserve a full-time on-duty physician, then Christ, as our infinite high priest, is the full-time physician 
of our souls on duty to minister to everyone who has faith in him, giving his full attention as though there were not another patient on the earth but you. You know, being our high priest, that's hard work. We need to appreciate that. The heavenly sanctuary is the Pentagon wartime strategy staging area for finishing the great controversy with Satan. And that's hard work, delivering souls from the power of Satan. And Hebrews zeroes in on the two-phase ministry of that heavenly high priest as symbolized by the two apartments in the earthly sanctuary, the Old Testament sandbox model. And just as there was in the sandbox model of the Old Testament an annual day of atonement there in that earthly Hebrew sanctuary, so there must be a last day of atonement, and it is since 1844 in the heavenly sanctuary. And the, uh, the Hebrews called the Day of Atonement Yom Kippur. It symbolized the removal of all of the sins of Israel from the sanctuary where they had been recorded and their expulsion as so much garbage. And each earthly day of atonement resulted in a full and complete atonement for Israel where all their sins were blotted out and a total reconciliation with God and the scapegoat symbolizing Satan forever banished from the camp of Israel. There goes the garbage of sin with him. And since the heavenly high priest, high priestly ministry, is the grand climax, what is the difference between Christ's first apartment ministry and his second apartment ministry? In other words, his first apartment ministry before 1844 and his second apartment ministry after 1844. What is the difference? Well, if you go to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 29, it gives us a glimpse of his first apartment ministry. Hebrews 9 and verse 28. There we read, It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. And that gives us a glimpse of the first apartment ministry. In the first apartment, Jesus was preparing people to die, to be ready for the judgment. And that has been his ministry in most of the 2,000 years since his sacrifice. And let's be clear, all of those millions of believers who have gone into their graves since time immemorial must remain in their moldering graves until Christ is successful in preparing a people for translation at his second coming. Writes the apostle, but in verse 29 there, Hebrews 9, verse 29, Paul writes, But unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. His cosmic day of atonement ministry is con concentrated on preparing a people for translation at his second coming. But what about all of those who die during this time since 1844 and who have gone into their graves? Well, in the ancient service, the first department ministry continued through to the final day of atonement. 
And so it is today. But we must not forget or frustrate Christ's primary goal for today. He is preparing a people to be alive when he comes. He's preparing a people for translation. Now the common idea is that our Lord is uh, a busy construction contractor. Why? He's building palaces. He's making mansions, many rooms for those who are going to arrive in heaven. But preparing a place for you is a far bigger idea than just celestial construction, contractor activity. Hebrews 9 and 10 describe his high priestly ministry as cleansing the hearts of his people, putting away sin, purging the conscience, preparing a people to receive the promise of an eternal inheritance, purifying hearts and minds and lips to make the comers thereunto perfect, to render obsolete any conscience or remembrance of sins, to take away sins, to perfect forever them that are sanctified, to write his laws into their hearts which are sprinkled from an evil conscience, to provoke or motivate unto love and good works, to believe unto the saving of the soul. That's what we find in Hebrews 9 and 10. That's a big job for Jesus. A big job. First, he naturally wants his people to understand why what he's doing is so incomparably important. And second, he would, appre- he, he would appreciate our cooperation because he can't accomplish anything without our cooperation. Not that you, in any sense, become your co-savior as the Pope wants to elevate Mary to become. Cooperation doesn't save you, but cooperation means that you stop interposing your rebellious will to counteract what he's seeking constantly to do for you. In other words, through Jesus' vicar, which is the Holy Spirit, Christ, as our high priest, is constantly pressing upon his people the conviction of sin that is buried deeper than they have imagined it to be. And when the conviction is welcomed and the sin is gladly surrendered and put away, the heart is more closely connected to Jesus. And that process is called atonement. It's becoming at one with God. As Romans 5.11 says, it is receiving the atonement or reconciliation. And so the cleansing of the sanctuary is a final atonement. Have you ever heard about the two men who never had a funeral? Have you ever heard about the two men who never had a funeral? Well, their friends never had a death notice in the newspaper about them. No one ever said goodbye to them. I'm thinking of Enoch and Elijah. No one ever saw a death notice for Enoch and Elijah. Now, in 6,000 years of history, with untold billions of people, the Bible tells of only two who have been spared death, Enoch and Elijah. Even the divine Son of God was not spared from death. And of Enoch, we read this. 
in Genesis 5.24. By faith, Enoch was translated so that he did not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Well, that begs the question, how did he please God? And we have this simple word in Genesis 5.24, that Enoch walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. His walk with God was totally an unselfish ministry to his fellow men. His last day on earth was like his first day in heaven. He was at home with heaven's companionship. Now, for 5,000 years ago, when the wickedness on the earth in Enoch's day was just like it is today, he lived before the flood. Enoch lived a man who was undefiled in his conscience before God. He was acquainted with the wickedness of the big cities of his day. And he he would not uh, necessarily live in them, but he did work among the people of the city from without, where he dwelt. He was burdened by the reality that God would not spare those wicked uh, inhabitants forever. And he warned them of God's coming judgments, and he pleaded with them to turn away from their wicked ways. And he prophesied in Jude 14, verse 15. Enoch was a prophet, you know. Jude 14. He said, Behold, the Lord cometh with tens of his tens thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And while this man Enoch lived and spoke this warning to the people of that day, it is also given for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. So the man Enoch lived with God in such a way that he walked with God. He lived differently than the people of his day. And he must have realized that the business and the striving for riches and the love of pleasure and the seeking of interest that only pleases self would never give him the opportunity to live in such a way that he would be able to walk with God. And so he chose a quieter life away from the clamors of the world. And no doubt, he was not idle. He sustained himself by honest labor, and yet there he found solitude where he could walk with God. His life was so in harmony with the ways of heaven. His conscience was so cleansed by faith in Christ Jesus that he walked with God such a way that one day his friends looked for him and he was not, for God took him. Now Paul says there will be a multitude like him, translated, without seeing death, when Jesus returns in the clouds of heaven. They're not monks that are holed up in a monastery in the desert somewhere, but they're living in the midst of the multitudes. They are loving people as Christ loves them. Now, the only other person that was so translated was the prophet Elijah. We're told Elijah was not, for God took him with a whirlwind of a chariot of fire in 2 Kings 2.11. You know, we never get a sight then again of Enoch, but we do meet Enoch, uh, Elijah rather on the Mount of Transfiguration when he appeared with Jesus in glory in Matthew 
And lo and behold, who else was there? Moses was there. But he had died. And he had experienced a resurrection from the dead. And so Moses represents the vast hope of sleeping saints who will be raised in the first resurrection when Jesus comes again. And Elijah and Enoch represent the living people who will never experience the sleep that the Bible says is the first death. That is amazing. That is amazing. Now God promised that he is going to send us Elijah before the great and the terrible day of the Lord. I am praying for a very important person to come with the message, Elijah. Because I need it. We need the Elijah message. But why does God choose, by the way, that prophecy is in Malachi 4, verses 4 and 5. Before the great and terrible day of the Lord, he's going to send us Elijah. But why does he send Elijah and not Enoch? Obviously, to do again what Elijah did in Ahab's Israel long ago. Because Elijah turned the hearts of Israel with his message. His message struck the hearts, the Holy Spirit convicted them, and they repented in Ahab's day. So the new Elijah will plead with them, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. An Elijah message. And if we're reconciled to God by the blood of Christ, we will be reconciled to one another in Christ, in him. Elijah's message will be Christ and him crucified. The most glorious proclamation of the full truth of the gospel that was heard in the world since Pentecost. The Pentecost message was the uplifting of the cross of Christ and it induced a conviction of repentance. That same Elijah message is to sound. That's how God is going to get the attention of the whole world again with the message of the cross. And then we're told that Elijah will also behead the modern prophets of Baal after it is clear that they refuse to repent. Do you remember there at Mount Carmel after the 450 devotees of Satan's Baal worship stubbornly refused to repent even after the fire fell on the mountain? Elijah reluctantly ordered their destruction because they were a poison to the world. And a wise writer, speaking of the coming crisis, wrote, Frequent will be the apostasies of men who have occupied responsible positions. That will be the beheading of the prophets of Baal. The great issue so near at hand, she says, will weed out those whom God has not appointed, And he will have a pure, true, sanctified ministry prepared for the latter rain. Elijah, ancient and modern, that's only good news. And I'm praying for Elijah, a very important person and message. Now the grave, the grave, folks, was never God's ideal for those that he has created. 
The grave has never been God's ideal for you and for me. In fact, where we sit right now, the good news is God doesn't plan the grave for you. He wants you to be alive at his coming. Consecrated to be used as a channel and evidence, a witness of the power of the gospel that will help him win his great controversy with Christ, with, between Christ and Satan. So the Bible holds out what is called the blessed hope. By the way, the blessed hope, if you read it there in Titus 2, 13 and 14, let this be sealed in your mind and my mind, the blessed hope is the sanctuary truth. That Jesus can prepare a people who overcome sin by their choice through his power. They overcome sin and they can stand alive when he comes the second time. If you read the context there, it's talking about Christian character perfection. That's the blessed hope. So do you want your pastor to pat you on the back and say, you're okay, I'm okay. You know, you're going to make some mistakes along the way, but everybody does it. So don't worry, just continue. You want your pastor to teach you that? You want your pastor to teach you a crossless gospel that has no self-denial in it whatsoever? I cannot do that conscientiously. The gospel teaches us the power over sin. Sinless living in sinful flesh. And that makes us even more vulnerable before our God and before one another. Because it's not a people who go around bragging how perfect they are, but it's a people who are ever more humble in acknowledgement that they have a self that could destroy them at any moment, but for the grace of God. It must be constantly kept under guard by the cross of Christ. It's not a people who go around bragging how perfect and sinless they are. But we proclaim a gospel of sinless living in sinful flesh, unabashedly and unashamedly, because it is according to the law of God. Any other gospel does away with the law of God. Translation, blessed hope, establishes the law of God. So it has not been in God's plan for us, the grave. Rather, translation, without seeing death, for those who prepare to meet the life giver when he returns. Go, you must look at this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. Here you have translation. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. There comes this voice from the archangel. Paul describes it with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. There you have all of those who've been prepared by the first apartment ministry, to die and come up in the resurrection. And then it says, and here is where the message is for us, we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's translation. Now you don't hear much about that but it's clearly a part of Bible teaching. God's people who are ready will be translated without seeing death at the second coming of Jesus. You don't hear much about that. To some, this Bible doctrine sounds 
too close to fanaticism for comfortable discussion. But you know, if you think about it, it's actually no more difficult for God to translate his people without their dying than it will be for him to resurrect the ones, the dead ones from their graves at the second coming. That is the essence of the blessed hope that is cherished by those who believe in the second coming. Paul makes clear that when Jesus returns, there will be a people who are alive and remain, who shall be caught up together with those resurrected from the grave to meet the Lord in the air and always be with the Lord. Now, no wonder Paul calls it the blessed hope. But we err if we think of it as our blessed hope, as though our reward were what is what's so important. The, the blessed hope is the blessed hope of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Do you see the difference? If it's our blessed hope, then we're back on ourselves again. If it's Jesus' blessed hope, then our translation means that he has a testimony, a witness of what his gospel can do in overcoming in the great controversy. It is Jesus' blessed hope. I'll tell you, the one who wants to come soon is sooner than anyone else is Jesus. And when his, when his people, when you and me, really want it as bad as he does, you'll see it happen just real quick. Not only does he long for the marriage of the Lamb to take place with his bride making herself ready, his heart yearns for all of the world who are in agony. He, this Sabbath day is not a day of rest for Jesus. This Sabbath day is hard work for Jesus. For millions and billions of people around the world to get their attention with the cross message. Well, why must the last generation become totally surrendered in order to be translated? Good question. Why can previous generations in the first resurrection enter heaven without the experience of total victory over sin required of those who will be translated? Well, this word required almost implies something that requires further balance in the thought of preparation a bridegroom, Jesus, doesn't require the surrender of his bride. Jesus wins it with his love. The marriage of the Lamb does not take place because God rigidly demands a self-sacrificial devotion, and he's going to force that solution upon us, overcoming even as Christ overcame, is a joyous character development, a falling in love with him that takes place as faith grows to a heart union with the divine bridegroom himself. It's not doing it at the point of a gun requirement. It's the fruit of justification by faith at last clearly understood. Why is the last generation the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb? It almost sounds backwards. First fruits, there seem to be the last ones on the scene of earth's history. It is a generation, a corporate body, not merely a handful of individuals, the same few of every age, the some few of you, 
Christ must have a bride, a corporate body of believers, the first to demonstrate that the overcoming that Christ accomplished in his life, human beings who have a mature faith can copy, though never equal. They will reflect his character like so many broken scraps of worthless mirror, not shining on their own, but each perfectly reflecting another facet of his righteous character like a big, huge diamond. And that corporate body judges all previous generations. Satan's charge for 6,000 years has been that it is impossible for human beings with a fallen sinful nature, it's impossible for them to truly overcome sin. He claims that he's invented something which is sin that proves that God is completely wrong and judged by the dismal record of Laodicea, it appears that Satan has won the argument. The fact that the Son of God overcame and condemned sin in the flesh, that's not the final issue, although popular Reformation gospelists would love to consider it so, thus excusing us from truly overcoming sin. But something else is needed. Christ's victory on the cross was indeed a setback for Satan, proved him wrong to the heavenly universe, but Satan's charge still stands so far as this human race is concerned. They cannot, as sinful human beings, keep the law of God. It's impossible for us to obey, is his accusation. And the reason that the most precious message that God has given to us is so vigorously opposed is because of its teaching this possibility, and yes, certainty, that God will have a people who fully overcome. That's the source of opposition to it. There will be a demonstration of Christ's righteousness in sinful flesh. The honor of God is involved in the character perfection of his people. And if they at last support Satan's charges, charges, he's going to be forever embarrassed. God loves all of the vast hosts of redeemed who still sleep in Jesus. He longs to bring them from the tomb, but they must remain there as prisoners until the first resurrection. The Bible does not teach the immortality of the soul. Saints do not go to heaven at death. But that in turn cannot take place until the second coming because there's no angel that can resurrect the dead. But he dares not come so long as there is a cherished and unknown sin that is still in the characters of his people. Else his coming should be a consuming fire to them. Hence, God's love for the dead in Christ requires that a living last generation overcome totally, for otherwise Jesus is stymied. He that is dead, Paul tells us in Romans 6, 7, is freed from sin. Amen. All right? So if a person dies and they go into the grave and they come up in the first resurrection, they are freed from sin. And if a person chooses to be translated by faith and wants to be a channel through which God's grace can work, they will choose to be identified with Christ's crucifixion. And self will be dead. And that person will be dead. And they will be freed from sin. But we who are standing here on the verge of the precipice of the 
second coming, if we say, well, I'd rather take the underground route, then that's nothing more than pure selfishness and denying what Jesus died for. He deserves a reward. He deserves what he paid for. He paid for you to be a demonstration for him. He that is free, dead is freed from sin. Self is truly crucified with Christ. They have died to sin. And as a corporate body, they are first fruits to demonstrate it. May he give us grace to respond to his cross this morning. The blessed hope is the sanctuary truth of translation without seeing death when Jesus comes. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.